Hello, everyone. This is Jim Blackburn, and this is a new and different episode of my podcast, Grit, Stories of Resilience. Thanks for being with me now. In the last several episodes or weeks, I have tried to focus on grit and resilience, not only of the wild horses in the Currituck Outer Banks, uh, Jill Bullard in starting the food shuttle, Paulette Wilkes last week in moving from England to the United States, Jeff Hulse in his recovery from alcoholism that proved to be so successful. And also, of course, my good friend Rufus Edmiston in going to the very top in North Carolina politics, falling a little bit off the mountain by losing a race for governor, starting over as secretary of state, and then starting over again in private practice. All of these are, I think, successful stories of learning to start over and having grit. You know, one of the things that has intrigued me in the last several weeks is how difficult it is, how tough it can be to start over and try something new. Oftentimes that requires being accountable, being held accountable, admitting that you should be held accountable. When you've made a mistake to say so and trying to fix it, have the humility and indeed the courage to do that. That's Those are tough things to do. It's easy to talk about it. It's very difficult to do. I am reminded of a time many years ago when the former owner and head of the Raleigh News and Observer, Frank Daniels, took me to breakfast in downtown Raleigh. We were sitting there over a great breakfast at Big Ed's restaurant. And he looked at me and he smiled. He said, you know, Jim, if I had been your agent, your marketing agent, you could have made a lot more money on the sale of your book, Flame Out. And I looked at him somewhat surprised. I said, well, Frank, what would you have called the book? And he looked at me and just deadpan straight on him. And I can't tell you exactly the entire title because it's a little off color, but I will. you'll get the picture. He said, how to come back when you have really effed up. And I started to laugh. I said, well, if I was walking in an airport terminal and saw that book on a newsstand in a bookstore, I bet I would pick it up and at least thumb through a little bit of it before deciding whether or not to buy it. He agreed. The real truth is he is right. One of the things that I used to tell people all the time in my seminars, whether they're in long online or in person, when I was waiting tables even, the one thing I believe 
that I learned the most from all my experiences over the last 30 years is how to start over from a disaster, a self-imposed disaster of my own making. Now, there are many ways to start over, and I have no ownership of all of them. I only know that what worked for me, it might not work for anybody else, and I do not mean to suggest that it would, but I can only tell you what it what, what worked for me. About three or four years ago, I was in Charlotte doing a seminar, and a friend of mine, who was a lawyer and a partner in the law firm where I work in the Charlotte office, no longer with the law firm now, and there were about 10 or 15 people in the room at the hotel we were meeting in, he looked and he said, you know, if Jim had just simply walked down the hall and told the firm what was going on in his personal and professional life, this would all have turned out so differently for him. For example, I don't think he would have ever gone to prison if he had done that. And I sat there in my chair and I looked at him. His name was Charles. I said, Charles, what are you saying? What are you talking about? He looked at me and just, he smiled and said, Jim, it's the truth. If you had done that, I think it would have all have been different. I sat there for a moment, looked right back at him. And I said, well, Charles, the truth of the matter is, I don't believe I would ever have done that. I don't think that was going to happen. And then I tried to say to everybody, why not? Which is what I want to say to you here in this podcast. I think many of us, at least I do, or I did, had a failing, let's say, of moral courage. Moral courage. When it comes to admitting a mistake when no one else yet knows about it. When you think you can control it, or keep it under wraps. I don't think we tell our secrets until we have to. And then some of us don't even tell it then. Some of us don't even admit it then. We deny it and blame others all the way to the end. See that in criminal law all the time. The person who accepts responsibility at some point is way ahead of when he or she does not. And when you might ask, is it too late to do that? Does it reach a time when it is too late to accept responsibility or to be held accountable in order to survive and start over? I rather think that it is never too late. I am a believer that there's always a place for telling the truth and being honest and humble about the mistakes a person makes at least that's what I found out in my own life. Now, let me tell you this. I'm a late comer to this view. I don't know that I always thought that. I really never thought about it much at all. And it was difficult for me in the year of 1993 when I had uh, left the law firm and turned my license to practice medicine practice law in to the bar in April, had been indicted by the grand jury in July and waited 
until late in the year before I entered a plea. It was late in November, almost December. Those were tough months. The truth is, what I was doing during the year 1993 was figuring out how to survive all of the chaos that I had caused my life and myself. The pure chaos. No longer was I a lawyer going to the courthouse or the courtroom or meeting with clients, going to the law firm, a well-respected person in Raleigh. I was something quite different. And it was very public, at least in North Carolina. One of the things I found out was that if the AP prints a story about you that gets in the major newspapers, well, you know what happens. It's picked up by all the local small papers across the state. And so it was, it was well known. Now, the good thing about being uh, it produced in newspapers and radio and television is that once everybody knows about you, well, they know. I think what you do is you take advantage of the fact that everybody knows and then you don't have to worry about keeping it secret any longer. You just figure out how to handle it. Now, having said all this, it's still pretty difficult to come to terms with what you've done and to have accountability. I still did not yet know in the fall of 1993, for example, what was going to ultimately happen to me from a legal point of view. I knew what was going to happen to me from a job point of view, though I didn't have one. I'd worked for a few weeks at the Border Cafe, and it stopped working that. I was going to see my doctor once or twice a week. I was going for walks, all the while trying to figure out what to do with myself and my life. What I did not know, and why it was so difficult to plan the rest of my life, is quite frankly, I did not know whether I would be free or not free. It was that basic and that simple. It's hard to keep a stiff upper lip when you don't know what the heck is going to happen with you. Nevertheless, I was the beneficiary of that year of so many hundreds of wonderful, good friends, unconditional friends, as I have said. That helps a whole lot. But the time came in the fall of that year when the rubber was going to hit the road and I had to figure out what I was going to do. I had some people saying that I should, you know, try to get a plea bargain agreement, try to work the best deal that I could with the lawyer, with the DA. And that was certainly my view at that time. My lawyers, on the other hand, were having trouble convincing the DA that that was possible, that a deal was possible. He wanted me to plead guilty to everything. And they came around to the view, as I have said previously, that um, that is what I should do, that that was the only way back. In other words, my lawyers took a unconventional, different view of what I should do. They thought I should plead guilty to everything. 
give up the idea of seeking an agreement and just do it. And if I did it, I would get my life back. It reminds me sort of of a conference meeting I had with Judge Franklin Dupree Jr., who was the chief judge of the uh, United States District Court for the Eastern District of North Carolina with his office in Raleigh. Judge Dupree had been responsible for my becoming United States attorney years earlier. He had appointed me as an interim basis initially. And uh, he was the trial judge in the McDonald case. And he was also the trial judge when I was a baby federal assistant U.S. attorney teaching me how to try cases, most oftentimes in federal, uh, once or twice every couple of months. So I knew him pretty well. I went to see him one day and I had signed his name to a couple of fictitious orders. I had. I went to see him, went to his chambers and he looked at me pretty sternly and he could look at you rather sternly, I have to tell you. He said, Jim, you have really, really made a mess of things. He said, I got to tell you, Jim, of all the people I have known since I have been a judge, you're perhaps one of the very last people I have ever thought would get involved in such a mess of things that you have done. I sat there and looked at him and said, well, Judge, you're right. I agree. I totally agree, and I just want you to know how sorry I am for all that I've caused, including anything to do with you. He nodded a little bit, but not too much, didn't say much. He looked at me, and he was still stern. He said, uh, Jim, what is it that you want? I said, Judge, I want to be able to one day walk down the streets of Raleigh and people see me and I get to hold my head up. That is what I want. He reared out of his chair, slammed his hand on his desk and said, by God, you can do that. And I will help you do that. I think you need to write a book about all of this and come the hell back. That's what he said. He was my friend for life. He was also right. He accepted that I had said that I wanted to get my life back. That's what he thought was the right answer. You know, most people who are charged with crimes want probation. They don't want to go to jail. They want to be free. Most people who are in a domestic relations case and they have made some mistakes, 
done some things wrong. Most people in lawsuits, one way or the other, have erred in some way. And what everybody like that wants, including myself at that time, was to have the clock turn back and be a little bit earlier and perhaps a have a do-over. That's what people want. They want a do-over. They want to have it erased. And they don't want to suffer the consequences. Suffering the consequences is not fun. That being said, I remember going to see Dr. Seymour Halleck he was a second psychiatrist that was appointed for me by the court, in addition to Dr. Spalding. He was a, a doctor over in Chapel Hill at the UNC hospitals. He'd actually been a psychiatrist in the McDonald case at one point, though I did not know that at the time. He told me later that he had been. And I didn't see him a lot. Saw him on an outpatient basis about half a dozen times. We got along very well. He was really worried about me from a medical point of view. He thought I uh, was close to being bipolar and manic depressive in that I would, would not shut up and talk too much and would let him get a word in edgewise and sort of a motor mouth as he talked, call me, which he was probably right. And then he said, Jim, you need to figure out what you want to do. Right now, you shouldn't do anything. I would not even recommend that you enter a plea to anything, plea bargain or anything, until you make sure that you are at peace with the situation and you fully accept what's happened to you and do something about it. Rick Ammon used to be fond of saying, he's, Rick was one of my lawyers and friends, that Jim early on understood intellectually what had happened to him, what he had done, what he did not understand what could not grasp was the emotional impact of it all. And those are entirely two different things. You can understand and admit the mistakes you made on an intellectual academic basis, but getting your arms around and embracing it is something quite, quite different. So I left Dr. Halleck's office that afternoon, drove back to Raleigh, thought about it, picked up the telephone and called Rick Gammon and said, Rick, I want to plead now. What do you want to plead to, Jim? I want to plead guilty to everything. Are you sure? Yes. I want to do it. And if you can arrange, Rick, to have court convene tomorrow, which I knew he couldn't, I will do it then, after consulting with Wade Smith and Colin Willoughby, the district attorney, court was set for an entry of plea on the first Monday after Thanksgiving. It was November the 29th. It was cold. It's a pretty day, though. It was clear. I went to the courthouse by myself because I didn't want my family or anyone else to go with me because I was the one who had gotten myself into this holy mess. And I didn't think anybody else should be punished by having to go with me to enter a plea of guilty. So I got in my car and drove down town through some nice 
what they call leafy neighborhoods. I've never really understood what a leafy neighborhood is, but this was would qualify as leafy. And went down to Glenwood Avenue, the main artery into downtown Raleigh, drove to the Wake County Courthouse and found a still deserted parking deck immediately behind the courthouse and went to the very top floor and parked outside on the fifth floor where nobody yet was. It was early, just a little after eight o'clock and uh, walked down the steps somewhat quickly, walked into the Wake County Courthouse, which had opened at eight o'clock and walked the stairs up to the third floor, which is where the courtrooms were. I don't think I saw anybody that I knew early that morning which is probably a good thing for me. As I opened the door to the lobby on the third floor, my mind raced back to just over 10 years before when I'd been on that same floor in that same lobby waiting for a jury to come back in the trial of State of North Carolina versus James Green, Jimmy Green, who was then the sitting Lieutenant Governor of North Carolina in a case in which I had been appointed by the governor of North Carolina to be a special prosecutor. Wade Smith was a defense lawyer. Rick Gammon, who had been out of law school not that long, a couple of years, was uh, my uh, co-counsel. It was a two-week trial. We did it the best we could. We were not successful, and Jimmy Green was found not guilty on all counts. It was a tough afternoon after that happened, but we got through it. I tried other cases there, murder cases, smaller cases, the guilty pleas. I was up there a lot. There are three courtrooms on that floor. I'd always been in the large one, which is where they did most of the trials. And the other one was one where I was set for that morning. I walked over, opened the door, and it was pretty deserted. There were two or three people standing around. Wade and Rick were already there. Wade rushes up to me and quickly gives me a bear hug. Rick shakes my hand and says, how are you doing? He says, Jim, I just want to tell you again. I know you're pleading guilty to all the counts. There were 12 of them. But it doesn't make any difference whether you spend, you plead 12, 5, or 1. It, they're all the, it's all the same. If you plead 1, you might as well plead to 100. In for a penny, in for a pound. Well, about nine o'clock, we started court. Colin was on the other side. I was in the middle on the right-hand side. Wade on one side and Rick on the other. Judge Height, Chip Height from Henderson uh, was the trial judge. I had known Judge Height, had been in front of him before though never as a defendant. And I don't think ever in any criminal cases, just some civil matters, no trials. He had a nickname in Fedford where he had tried a lot of cases as maximum height. That is to say, he would tend to give defendants who appeared before him who got convicted or pleaded guilty a lot of time. I did not know that was his nickname at the time. He nodded and found, looked at everybody and said, well, we're here to take uh, a plea of, of some sort in the case of state of North Carolina versus James Blackburn. That's the first time anybody had ever said that to me. 
I tell you what, folks, it will get your attention. It will focus your brain when somebody says the state or the government versus you. It really will. Even in a speeding ticket or a traffic ticket or anything like that, it will get your attention in the criminal courts. They have what they call a transcript of plea. That is to say, it's a sheet of paper front and back where you answer some questions and you sign it in the back. It has a provision there at the bottom of the front page about the terms of the plea bargain agreement. The judge has to sign and accept it. And he asks you some questions. He goes over the sheet of paper with you in open court. And you have to verbally, after being sworn as a witness, to answer them truthfully. I don't recall, because I don't really have that transcript of plea any longer, uh, what all the questions were, but I remember the thrust of them. And the first question he asked me, which is always the first question to any defendant, was, was I under the influence of alcohol or drugs that day? And I said, well, yes. He looked at me somewhat again, askance and said, what, what's going on? What are you under? I said, well, I'm taking Prozac for depression. He calmed down. He calmed down a bit and he said, uh, what's the uh, normal daily amount of Prozac that a person should take? I said, 10 milligrams a day. That's the average normal. Well, how much are you taking? Well, Judge, I'm taking 50 milligrams a day. I had once gone to 60, but they took me from 60 back to 50 because at 60, I was beginning to bounce off the walls a bit, you know, but I was on 50. He looked at me and he said, well, is it helping you at all? I said, yes, Judge, I think that it is. He said, well, that's, that's good. I like the fact that he said that was good. It meant at least he was a little bit understanding of my situation. And then he went on for this long explanation of the fact that I was pleading guilty with no plea bargain agreement. And he said, are you sure that you want to do this? Judge, I, yes. Now, Mr. Blackburn, you understand that you cannot appeal to any other court from my decision in sentencing in this case. If you enter a plea today, then sentencing is going to be next week. The term of court this week will be over. You're not going to be able to appeal if I sentence you to every count in here, an active sentence and run them all consecutively. You know, that's over a hundred years in prison. Are you sure that you want to do this and give me that much authority and power over your freedom? And I said, yes. I really don't think I hesitated that morning. I'd already done a lot of thinking and arguing and worrying and praying and everything else about this for the last several months. And I'd come to the conclusion, to the view, that I was going to do this. I was going to do like Robert Frost in the poem, 
the shortest way out is through. I was going to go through this, whatever the heck happened. I was not turning back. And so he said, very well. And he turned to Colin to narrate some evidence, you know, to support a factual basis for the entry of the plea. And uh, we went from there. And then he adjourned court, but not before saying sentence would be the following Monday in Superior Court. And it was over, just like that, it was over. The, ch the change in my legal status had taken probably not much more than 30 to 35 minutes. It was still early in the morning, a little after 9.30 to quarter of 10. I got myself together, shook Wade's hand, shook Rick's hand. They said they'd be in touch with me, and they left. I walked outside the courtroom, and a young lady named Sarah Avery, who was then a staff reporter for the News and Observer, came up to me and asked me if I would make a comment that she could put in the paper for the following day. And I looked at her and I smiled and said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. And she said, well, what are you thinking? How are you feeling? And I don't really recall exactly what I said, but it was along the lines of, well, I have made some serious mistakes. I need to figure out how to get this right, how to start everything over again and make something out of my life. That's what I've got to do. And this is the first step of that. I walked down the same three flights of steps in the courthouse by myself, walked down into the sunshine, walked back across the street to the <clears throat> parking deck where my car was and drove home. I was okay. I had, you know, come to some sort of peace about all of this. I was all right. Whatever happened would happen. And I think then I thought, well, I didn't think I was going to get 100 years in prison, but I thought I didn't even want an active sentence. I was still hoping for probation. But whatever it was that the judge decided to give me, I would take. Whatever I had to do, I would do. What I want to say to you in this podcast is that I felt at peace. I felt better. I felt calm. I even felt a little bit, not too much, but a little bit good about myself in that I thought I had finally, after the entire year had come and gone, had finally, openly, legally done the right thing. I had legally accepted responsibility. I had walked into court. I had asked for no favors. I did not whine that day. And I just did it. 
I had not wanted to do this. I had fought the whole year not to do this. I did not come to this easily. I wasn't happy about having to make this decision. But in the end, I had done this. The reason I want to start this podcast like this and perhaps the next one or two that are coming up is to tell you about my feelings about accountability and being held accountable and coming to terms with mistakes. It simply depends on what you want out of your life. What I wanted more than probation, more than a low sentence, what I wanted most was to get my life back. And the only way I had a chance, a snowball's chance, and you know where, of doing that was to accept responsibility completely. That's 30 years ago or 29 years ago right now. It's been a long time. What I will tell you in looking back now, all these years later, that that decision has stood the complete test of time. I've never second-guessed it, though some have suggested I could have gotten a better deal if I'd worked harder at it, but I have never second-guessed this decision. I did something I thought I had to do. I know that many people charged with crimes seek plea bargain agreements, and I don't blame them. I think in the vast majority of cases, that's what a person ought to do to get the best deal he or she can. I, I don't argue with that at all. I will only say in my particular case, in my particular situation, unique only to me, what I wanted was not so much my freedom, but my life is what I wanted. And I would do anything to get it. When you think, when you've thought about taking your life over what your conduct has brought you, and you decided to keep it and not make a quick bad decision, you want to do all that you can to have the best life that you can have. And so for me, it was, in the end, straightforward and simple. My only regret, my only regret, is it took me so long to get there. I wished I had gotten there sooner. I really do. But in the end, it has made all the difference. Later on, in the sentencing, which I will get to in the next podcast, Colin Willoughby quoted the poem, The Road Not Taken, taking a different path or a different road, implying, of course, as I guess he was correct, that I had once taken the wrong path, the wrong road. I'm putting it as best I can from memory, but it's along the lines of 
in the woods to pass. I took the one less traveled by, and it has made all the difference. That is what I did that 29th day of December, 1993. It has made all the difference. Thanks for listening to this podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, that's great. And I just invite you to click the follow button if you think about it or you can. And I hope to see you again next week. Thanks.